It's easy to pass by the unassuming law office at 4510 Malcolm X without realizing it houses a Dallas institution. But once inside, you immediately get a sense of its rich history. On the walls of its long central hallway are images of Dallas's past. At the end is a beautiful little library and a woman whose knowledge runs deeper than the entire collection of books. I can talk about a whole lot of things. Molly Belt, among many other things, is the editor-in-chief of the Dallas Examiner, which has provided a closer look at your world for over 30 years under her leadership. She can tell you a great deal about how the city has evolved in that time, but before she does... Look, can I tell you something first about myself? Absolutely. Okay. I grew up in Dallas. Um, well, I lived several places before with my family. I lived in Tuskegee, Alabama, first and second grade. And then we moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I lived there for three years. And then we moved to uh, Dallas. Dallas was a segregated city. So I always tell people I lived in a segregated society. And uh, I am 74 years old now, so uh, when I left high school, Dallas schools were some of the last schools to integrate. So the schools were still segregated when I graduated from high school. And um, integration occurred after I left Dallas. And I graduated from Lincoln High School, it's right down the street. And um, I feel like I did get a good education there. I had some of the best teachers because they didn't have a lot of places they could go to work. So you can just imagine the kind of math teachers I had, the kind of chemistry teachers I had. Basically, if you uh, were a college graduate and you were black then, uh, you taught school or you worked in the school system. My father was a lawyer in private practice. He was in the same building. And my mother taught school in the public school system. Um, My mother did not take any education courses when she was in college. Uh, She was a straight uh, math major. She wanted to major in chemistry, but she said she didn't have a lot of clothes, so she she couldn't afford to get her clothes messed up in college, in the labs and stuff. So anyway, she, when when we lived in Tuskegee, she taught at Tuskegee uh, Institute there. She taught math, and that was a completely, really, really segregated. I didn't see any white people. And then we moved to... uh, Cambridge, and all of a sudden I was in a different kind of situation completely because, of course, it was it was integrated. My father went to Harvard. I went to school the third, fourth, and fifth grade in, in, in Cambridge. And then my father was originally from Dallas, so we moved back to Dallas where he started his private practice of law. I went to school here in Dallas. Dallas, I guess it may have been the last school system in the United States to really integrate. And let me tell you, when I was in high school, there were limited things living in a segregated society that we could do. And so as a high school student for recreation, my best friend and I would go to the public library downtown. It was integrated. They had built a new library. And so our parents would drop us off because my father didn't like me riding the bus because at that time you ride the bus, blacks had to sit in the back. So our parents would take turns dropping us off at the public library on Saturdays. We would stay down there about three hours just reading books. I love books. And um, they would pick us up because we didn't have anywhere to go eat lunch. There was a a dime store, H.L. Green's, and it was like a 
like a five and dime store. It was called H.O. Green's, and it had a, a, a basement, and there was a counter in the basement where black people could go and, and, and eat. And my father did not want me subjected to that kind of stuff, so I didn't. They would come pick us up. By the same token, I never went to the movies a lot because um, we had some black theaters, but the kind of movies that they played... My parents didn't want me to see, so uh, in the Majestic Theater had good movies downtown. However, uh, black people had to sit in the balcony, so my father didn't. Now, when I would go to visit my grandmother in Marshall, Texas, the movie theater there had the blacks up in the balcony, and um, my grandfather was a Methodist minister there in Marshall. He would take my cousin and I, let's go to the movie, and we would go in. It was a side entrance. We would go in and go up in the balcony, and if you wanted popcorn or whatever, you would order it, and she would go to the concession in the back and bring it out to you. Um, my mother's oldest sister was a missionary in Africa, and she would come home every three years on furlough. So when she would come home on furlough, you know, it's like she could put on her African attire and she could go in the front door of the theater. Isn't that funny? But as a Negro in, te- in Texas, we couldn't. Because she was seen as, you know, as a, exotic and exciting. Well, no, she was seen as uh, she's somebody, she, she had a country, mm. Africa. Mm. She came from another country. And so she had rights that we did not have here. In terms of the segregated high school, like I said, we had limited things we could do. Uh, I do feel like I got a good education because uh, when I graduated from high school from Lincoln, I had a scholarship to go to Spelman, an all-girls school in Atlanta. I went there for one year, didn't like it, and then I transferred to the University of Denver. The University of Denver is equivalent to SMU. It's a Methodist school, you know, private-owned and a lot of people in the South may not know as much about it as people in the in the West or the North because, you know, a lot of people came to the University of Denver from New York and people that like students that like to ski because we had easy access to the ski slopes. And so uh, when I left there, I came back to Texas and worked. But um, getting back to high school segregated, I think that's what they wanted to know a lot about. We were, uh, it, it was kind of funny, things were dictated to us. I remember, like as a child, like I remember that we could not, we had a joint commencement. There were only three black high schools, and the district office on Ross made us all graduate together. At, they had a new convention center. The seniors at Lincoln, Booker T. Washington, and Madison, we all graduated together. They also made us have a joint a prom, even though we did not want to have a, we wanted to have our own, you know, proms and stuff. They made us have it together. I do remember us protesting at Lincoln, and they charged us, you know, for the prom if you were going. And so our parents had given us money to pay, but we decided that we weren't going to pay the money because, you know, we were rebelling. We wanted to have our own prom. And you must realize, like, we were rivals because, you know, we played each other. I mean, we didn't want to have everything together. And I remember the principal, Mr. Holland, and he called us in. They called our parents, and our parents said, oh, no. My mother said, Molly's had her money for the prom. You know, everybody had had their money. And so the president of the student body said, I never forget Gerald Adams. He said, you know, he said, this is taxation without representation. You all just going to make us pay for the prom, and we have nothing to do with it. Anyway, we ended up paying for the prom and went on downtown. They let us have our own um, baccalaureate at the high school. They let us do that separately. And I think a lot of it probably had to do with 
it was a new convention center and utilizing that facility. That's what I think, but I don't know. At the same time, these are all big schools, though. Yeah, but that's what they they made us do it. And I I guess it's something that just, you know, lives with me. I mean, I remember integration in Dallas. It was kind of a slow process. My father wrote a paper called When the Walls Came Tumbling Down. Uh, And he talked about all the meetings, you know, that they had leading up to integration. Dallas never really had the bad uh, protests and things that you had in in other cities in the South. Now, you know, Houston had some. And then, of course, the Deep South had a lot. And so basically, Dallas fathers that be, when they figured, okay, this is what we're going to do. It's like the next day they saw this pressure coming. They just kind of opened everything. But you still had, you know, remnants of segregation. For example, um, the Y was a very integral part of our community, the YMCA and the YWCA. I uh, took ballet lessons at the YWCA. And I mean, the YMCA was the only indoor pool that blacks could go to and swim in. It was just, you know, it had lots of activities, and they had these little youth groups, Tri-Hi-Y and Hi-Y, the Tri-Hi-Y with the girls and the Hi-Y with the boys, and I belonged to that, and I remember at one point, we would have meetings like downtown where they would have white students and black students, you know, we would kind of meet together and uh, talk about stuff. They were getting ready to go to Austin for, uh, I've forgotten exactly what day they called it, uh, but it was like a, you know, experiencing legislative day. But we couldn't go because we were black. So the white kids walked up and they, you know, they were going to Austin. We couldn't go. And uh, my father was so hurt, he sent me to a Quaker camp in New England. And I never forget, that's the first time I flew a plane. And he put me on that plane by myself. And when I got to Chicago, I will never forget, I had to fly a helicopter from one airport to the next. I went on up there to the Quaker camp because, you know, he didn't want me. I mean, just you can just imagine what kind of effect that has on kids. And one of my classmates, uh, James Gray, he's an ophthalmologist, and he recently retired, uh, close to his practice, but he did move to be the head of the ophthalmology department at Balaam. And one day we were talking, and he said, you know, Molly, he said, I will never forget they had, they called it Boy State or something. And he said that they let them go, and he never will forget, he was also an artist. And he had drawn the logo for Boy State, and it won first place. But he could not stay on the campus, University of Texas, with the rest of the kids. He said he had to stay at a little motel off on the east side. So it's just a lot of things, you know, and I tell people a lot of times I see the wounds are there, and I will go to my grave with a lot of these wounds, even though I look forward, you know, to what can I do now? What can we do to make things better? Uh, How can we change people's perceptions, you know, of black people? We had, as I said, we were close to the kids. My mother taught at Madison when she moved back here, and so we were close to the students there, and we had, oh my goodness, um... I know of three students in Madison that went on to uh, medical school. One went on to become an ambassador to, I forgot, some of those little countries, Belize or somewhere. But when I say we got a good education, in spite of the fact that we had uh, hand-me-down textbooks, textbooks that were outdated and did not have the same lab equipment and stuff that other students had, but we had excellent teachers. 
I know that one of the students, we did a supplement on them, oh, several years ago, because I kind of wanted the Dallas community to know, you know, some of the graduates of Madison High School and what they were doing, because, you know, Madison has really been in trouble lately. So... One of them, his name is Kip Lenore, and he is a, he's a doctor. He practices in L.A. now, and he finished Madison. When he first finished, he went to Howard University. It's a black college. Then he got this uh, Zales jewelry. They had the Zales Foundation. They were given scholarships, and he applied. He got a scholarship to go to medical school. So he came back to Texas, and he had to go to the University of Texas. And then he left there and went on to medical school, UT in Galveston. He said when he went to Howard, he said they had to learn, like, the whole book, everything. See, at that time when you had segregation, blacks, we overlearned, you know. And so he said, like, you know, if they had a book, they had to learn it all. So when he transferred to University of Texas, he said it was actually easy for him because, you know, they would just have tests over, you know, just certain chapters and stuff. And he was accustomed to, you know, knowing more. So it was easy. And also, a friend of mine who's female, she finished Madison, too, a couple of years behind Kip. She got that same Zale scholarship, and she went to the University of Texas. And, of course, at that time, the girls could not stay in the dormitory at the University of Texas, so they had a little house in the community on the east side that they let the black girls stay in. And that house, they didn't integrate the dorms at Texas until Lyndon Johnson was elected president, and his daughter was going to school there. So they didn't want that bad publicity that here it is, the state school, and, you know, even though black could go to the University of Texas, you know, the girls couldn't live on campus. So she's a doctor, too. My mother taught her math, and she said that one of her instructors at UT asked her one day, where did you learn this math? And she said, my math teacher in high school taught it to me. She was really more advanced than the other students. When integration occurred in Dallas, when they integrated the schools, see, the supervisors were all white. When I say supervisors, the ones who, like, they had, you know, supervised all the math teachers in high school and the social studies teachers. And so when they integrated the schools, they took the best teachers. The supervisors knew who were the good teachers. So they took the good teachers and sent them immediately to the white schools. That's how they integrated. They took the best counselors and they sent them to the white schools um, because they knew who they were. So in terms of an education... In spite of the outdated textbooks, in spite of not having, you know, and and it's like Anitha, that's one I told you that was, she's a doctor now. She said, you know what? She said, I really didn't know at that time. I didn't feel that I was living, a, you know, a substandard life. She said she didn't really, she did not feel the, the uh, discrimination because our parents basically, we were, you know, what you don't know about, you don't miss. And uh, when I went to college, my father did not want me to go to school in the South. He did not want me to go to HBCU. He wanted me to go to school in the North because he felt like if you grew up in the South, you need to go be educated in the North, vice versa. Kids in the North, he said, needed to come experience the HBCU. So that's why you left Spelman then? I left Spelman because Spelman was an all-girls school, and they were very, very strict and they, you know, I look back on it now as an adult, and I know they were very protective because at that time, when I went to Spelman, it was 1961, right in the heart of the civil rights movement in Atlanta, Mississippi, Alabama, you know. And so it was not safe. Uh, so they did things to try to protect us. Like when we went to the movies, we always went with an adult chaperone. Uh, they would 
walk us down the street to the movies, sit with us the whole time, and then come back. Uh, we were not allowed to just go off campus at that time. There was a fence around Spam with three rows of barbed wire at the top. And basically, even when you when we went, <clears throat> then the mode of transportation was primarily by train. And so Spelman would meet the girls. You had to fill out a form and say when you were coming in. But that was all really trying to protect us because, I mean, the Ku Klux Klan, all that, that was very active then. And so we'd have to let them know when we're coming in, what time our train arrived. And when we got off the train, it was people, adults from Spelman there to meet us and take us to the to the campus. And we used to laugh, oh, God, we're going back to the prison, you know. <laughs> but And so I didn't want to live that kind of life. I felt like, well, I was at home. I was sheltered. I was an only child. I wanted to experience things. I wanted to, to learn. And so I decided, you know, I just got tired of, I made very good grades at Spelman, but I just decided that um, that's not what I wanted to do for four years. And at Spelman, we had chapel every morning at 8 o'clock. And you had assigned seats. And the dean would be up in the balcony, and she would check you off so you had to be present 8 o'clock in the morning. And before you left to go to chapel, you had to make your bed up. And so the house mothers would go around and inspect the rooms while we were at chapel. And chapel, they would... uh, Oh, they would bring some very, very well-known people would come and speak to us, you know. And they would talk to us about how they met challenges, how they got to where they are. And, you know, listening to that every morning, I'm like, do I really want to be here? You know, I really want to experience the world. I really don't want to be sheltered like this. And my father rebelled against it because he didn't want me to go anyway. And uh, when it was time to come home that Christmas, I was only stayed one year. My house mother called me downstairs and she said, Mom, your father hadn't, your, your mother, they haven't sent permission for you to go home for Christmas. I said, well, I don't know why, Miss Hardman, because I have my ticket to go. So anyway, she said, well, call your father on the phone right now so, you know, I can talk to him so you can go home for Christmas. So I called my father. He was very angry. You know, I mean, it's like, this is just ridiculous. I mean, that's just how strict it was, you know, and because we had lived in Tuskegee, and one of my parents' good friends still lived in Tuskegee. She was a librarian at Tuskegee Institute. And uh, her husband had died, and she let me come visit her during the Easter break. I couldn't just go visit her. I mean, they actually—my my parents had to send a letter saying that I could go. But before that, Miss Burns had to send a letter inviting me to come to her house for Easter. That's just how strict it was. That's why I left Spelman. I later, in fact, several years ago, I bought the book. It was used called The Spelman Story. Very interesting book. It's an old book. They said even before I got there that uh, they used to tell the girls when to put their long underwear on and when they could take them off. When, when the season's cold enough, you put your long underwear on now and, and when to take them off. I mean, it was just really strict. So that's why I left Spelman and I... I went to DU because when I told my father, you know, I want to transfer. I just don't want to come back here. And he was just elated. And it was like he's getting ready to go to college. He started, you know, started looking up schools and stuff. So he found the University of Denver. And they had a late uh, cutoff for admission. DU was on a quarter system. So I went to the University of Denver. And it was a different experience. There were very few blacks there when I went. And they actually called me the other year, and I wrote an article for them for their um, <laughs> DU newsletter. <laughs> but I, you know, it was, um, so what else you want me to talk about? 
I asked her about her mom's teaching career in the pre-desegregation era while starting a new track. She was, um, like I said, you know, I started out and I told you that she never took any education courses. And then uh, in Dallas, the black community was very, very close-knit. Everybody, you know, we basically lived around each other, went to church together, not like it is now. And so the way you got on with DISD was if you knew somebody. I mean, it wasn't just to go down to the personnel office and, you know, apply for a job like it is now. And so when we moved here, she was not from here. My father was. And his old coach was the principal at Lincoln, and he helped her get on. In other words, my father went to him and, you know, introduced him to my mother and, you know, said, she, you know, she was a teacher. They didn't have any colleges here at that time. Uh, so he helped her get on, so she got on teaching, but she had to take courses, you know, to get certified because she was not certified in elementary or secondary education. And uh, so she started teaching in West Dallas at uh, George Washington Carver, and then uh, they opened uh, Madison High School because all of the people, there was a lot of Jewish people that lived in, in Oak Cliff then around South Boulevard in that area. Everybody, you know, was like white flight. Everybody moved out. So here was this big school, so they gave that school to blacks. And um, when they did, they took some students from Lincoln and some from Booker T. And then they had the students from West Dallas. They bussed them from all the way from West Dallas to Madison. And they would have fights every day. But anyway, she taught math there. And uh, she was a very good math teacher. I told you about those students that she taught, and they did real well. And they would always win, like, number one prize at the uh, science fair. They'd have it at the fair park. And then when they opened up, she was the first black teacher at Del Centro. And um, she was hired as a math teacher. When she was at Booker T, of course, she was really, you know, just think at a, I mean, George Washington Carver Elementary School, that wasn't her thing at all because she'd been teaching calculus and stuff. But anyway, she was a good teacher. And then uh, she was there maybe a year or so, and then they opened uh, Madison. And the principal at Madison, his name was Thomas Talbert, and he was like a dictator. And then, you know, the black society was just kind of, you know, strict. That's what we didn't have a lot of that riffraff like, like goes on today. I mean... They would never have this, you know, kids walking around with their shirts out and their hands hanging down. And see, the whole concept thing was like, just like you were overeducated, you also, uh, in terms of your behavior, it's like you have to do this because, see, integration was getting ready to happen. So, you know, you have to be ready. And so a lot of times, uh, and I heard this at a funeral and I repeat it a lot, and it is true. This black teacher, they were talking about him, and he said, you know, he said, uh, we were preparing students to live in a world that we had never lived in. Because most of the teachers had never been around white people. They had never been to a white institution. They finished school, and they went to a HBCU like Wiley or Texas Southern or Prairie View. You know, they even got their master's degrees at Texas Southern and Prairie View because you couldn't go to the universities here then. So they had no contact with white people. So they basically were preparing us to live in a world that they had not lived in. They were anticipating something, you know. My, I, my English teacher, I never will forget, Gladys Mayo at Lincoln, she would not let us write with a pencil. I don't write with a pencil right now. You probably can't find a pencil around this place because she made us write with, they had those pens with ink, you know, with the ink cartridges. That's what she made us write with. So I learned how to write with an ink pen, a ballpoint pen, without making errors. 
just write complete sentences. And so that's what I mean when I say over, you know, because you know what? When you go to the white school, this is what. And then it wasn't, of course, like that. But that's the way they they brought us up, you know. So in terms of the teachers, my mother at Madison, Thomas Tyler was very strict. He was a little short man. And he would have like faculty meetings at seven o'clock in the morning. I remember my mother hated it. She's like, oh, God, you know, and <clears throat> it's like chapel. Yeah. He'd have, he'd have the faculty meetings. And I mean, he kept the teachers all on their toes. And then, I mean, he ran a type ship at Madison, but he didn't have all this stuff that's going on now. And it was very difficult because remember I told you where the students came from. So you take students from those kind of neighborhoods and put them together, you know, you can imagine it took a while for them to stop fighting, having fights. Uh, but then my mother, when they opened El Centro, boy, that was her chance to teach at a college level. And she taught math. Before, my parents were murdered, but before she was murdered, she was getting ready to retire because she was very, very disappointed because she said that the students were just not prepared for college calculus and college math courses. And that's why there's a learning lab on the second floor at uh, El Centro. I guess it's still there. They named it after her, Mildred Finch Learning Lab, because she would stay afterwards, you know. It was more like tutoring the kids because they weren't ready. And she was very disturbed by that. Um, but um, she was a teacher. And we, like I said, we had different kind of teachers then. I can remember my mother sitting at the dining room table every night grading papers. She, I can remember her grading the math papers, and when the, if the problem was wrong, she didn't just put an X wrong. She would actually work out the problem for the student in red ink to show them how it was supposed to be. I mean, she worked every night, Monday through Friday, doing that, you know, for her students. Whereas, you know, today, I know when my kids were in high school, uh, oh, my goodness, they had those uh, Scantron, you know, tests and everything. And I'm like, how can kids learn how to write when you got all these uh, questions you just put it through a Scantron, you know? But that's what I remember about her teaching experience. I remember those meetings, and they were very frequent, 7 o'clock meetings before school starts. But that's kind of how he kept everything together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she always said, you know, kids, she said, it's what you expect them to do. You know, if you expect them to be able to do this and that's the way you treat them, then they'll do it. And that's the way she approached. And all of her students, you know, they said she she was a good teacher. She liked teaching. But today, a lot of the teachers, she wanted to be an actuary. What do you call it? An actuarial. Uh, they work for insurance companies. That's what she wanted to do. But they weren't hiring blacks then to do that. So, like I said, we had the best teachers because they were teachers that were very skilled, very knowledgeable. Yvonne Ewell was my English teacher, too. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. How was that? Oh, my goodness. You know, she was very articulate, and she loved literature, and I hated literature. <laughs> you know, Shakespeare and all that stuff. Oh, she was a good teacher. We had the best. And then as job opportunities started opening up, people started leaving public schools. And you know the history of Bishop College. Somewhat, but by all means. Well... My grandparents lived in Marshall, Texas, so I go down there every, every summer. And then my mother's sister taught math at Bishop in uh, Marshall. She got a divorce from her husband, and she lived with her parents in Marshall. So she would, went over to Bishop. Sometimes the lights would be turned off. They were having horrible financial problems. 
And uh, sometimes the gas would be off. I mean, they were struggling. It was a Baptist school. And she, because she lived with my grandfather at the parsonage, it didn't affect her like she was living in an apartment, had to pay rent, you know, stuff like that. She didn't even have a car. He would drive her over to the campus every morning, go back and pick her up, and the class was over. So <clears throat> it was during the civil rights era, and Dallas didn't have a black college. So black students were, you know, making attempts to go to SMU. And the fathers that be in Dallas decided Let's go find us a black college. It would be easier to move a black college here than to start one. So they looked to Marshall. Marshall had two black colleges, uh, Wiley's Methodist College and then uh, Bishop. And so because of the financial problems Bishop was having, they basically you know, gave him a lot of incentives and stuff to move the college to Dallas. And uh, they bought the land out there. I just say the fathers that be. They built the campus all at one time. They built the chapel, they built the uh, library, they built the student center, they built dormitories, they built the gym, all at one time. And I don't know if those streets are still named after them, but the streets used to be named after, like, uh, RL, you know, those, uh, I can't think of all the names now, but you know, those famous, uh, well, popular, well-known ones. And then they moved the college up here. Of course, it went along well you know, for a while, and then it went into financial problems, and you know the rest. Coma Cottrell bought it and moved Paul Quinn up there. And Paul Quinn is an African Methodist school, and Sorrell's is doing a good job there. But that's how the school got here, because they, they didn't want, you know, Dallas was very protective, and they didn't want blacks, you know, trying to go to SMU. Mm -hmm. mm. So you... You were in Alabama for first and second grade. Mm -hmm. and From the time I was a baby. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then Cambridge, third, third fifth fourth, grade. and fifth. Mm -hmm. So when you came back to Dallas, I had been exposed to, to more. When I came back to Dallas, I went to KB Polk Elementary School. Okay, great. And I knew things, and I had been doing things uh, uh, that the students in Dallas at KB Polk had not been doing. Mm -hmm. And I got a little lazy, like, you know, because I can remember a lot of the stuff was easy because I'd had it in Cambridge. And um, Yeah, I'm curious, you know, because like you mentioned, your friend saying you don't know the things you don't know. So if you're not aware of like their... Yeah, she didn't feel like, you know, oh, that was a terrible life. Right. But so with you coming in, having had experienced both something that's even more mm -hmm. rigidly segregated in Alabama and then something that's way more integrated in Cambridge coming to Dallas what what was it that was unique to to this city and then even you know once you go then to Atlanta and to Denver Dallas was Dallas. as i say still segregated when we came when we moved here i went to KB Polk i didn't find it very challenging at all uh, because I had had a lot of things. I think they were doing multiplications, a lot of stuff they were just beginning to do. I had been, you know, so it was easy. Um, in Cambridge, I wasn't really, uh, there wasn't a lot of social life. My father was in law school. And so we lived in the graduate student uh, apartment of an apartment building, Gibson Terrace. And there weren't any blacks in that neighborhood. I played with the little white girls. We played. I mean, I was unconscious, you know. I mean, um, and then uh, there was one little black girl in my class, 
and I met her, Hazel. And one day when her parents came to pick her up and then my parents came to pick me up and they met and then we would go over there to see her. That was the only black family that we knew in Cambridge. But mostly my father was studying and my mother loved to read. And so uh, <laughs> we would go to the library every Saturday check out books. She would check out books. and I See, she didn't work in Cambridge. She was accepted at Radcliffe to get her master's in math, but my parents couldn't afford the tuition. She didn't get a scholarship. So my father went on the GI Bill to Harvard, so she didn't work. And that's why later, when we moved here, he always promised her, you know, he would let her go get her master's. And she went to Reed College in Oregon. That's where she got her master's. But... Um, We'd go to the library. Check. She check out a whole stack of books, and I check out a whole stack of books. We go home and read them, and uh, go back the next Saturday and get some more. That was a social life, you know. And then um, I know one day we had a big chair in the living room, and she, I would sit there with her, and you know I'd read to her. I never will forget. She made me read all the books, uh, biographies about black. You know, George Washington Carver, Booker T. Washington, all of them. All of them ended good, except Phyllis Wheatley. I will never forget that. And I was reading about the Phyllis Wheatley book, and it was so sad the way she died. And I just started crying, crying. And my father said, don't make her read that book. And I never will forget, my mother said, that's life. She has to learn how to face life. So I didn't have a lot of social. I mean, it wasn't go, like going swimming or going to play tennis. It wasn't, you know, belonging to clubs or anything like that. I remember my father taking me skating up the street one time, and I was horrible. I was never an athlete. Then we had another family who the guy was getting his uh, Ph.D., some medical field, and he was a friend of my father's. He was in Boston because that's where the medical school was. And I remember that we would go over there and visit them. You know, and then they would come over and visit us. But not a lot of, you know, social activities. And that's why I guess I miss Tuskegee, you know, because Tuskegee was like lots of stuff to do at the, at the university, you know. My father was personnel director at the VA hospital. I mean, it was like the whole uh, community that we lived in, it was all black. We just had a good time, you know, my friends and all. I missed it. We went to Atlanta twice a year. We go in the wintertime to buy winter clothes, and we go in the spring to buy spring and summer clothes. And we didn't grocery shop in Tuskegee. We would go to Columbus, Georgia to grocery shop, and my father would go once a month. But like I say, I had a lot of friends. I didn't have that many friends, like close, you know, stuff in, in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you were in Tuskegee because he had been— He was in Tuskegee Air Force. Mm-hmm. I have a picture out there I'll show you before you leave that I found up in the attic where he was uh, in officer's training school. And it's a picture of about 100 or more people. He's the only black on that picture. And it was taken in, has written at the bottom, 1943, in Miami. He never talked about that experience. I had it framed. I can imagine what he probably went through in Miami. Because what happened, see, when he graduated from college, you know, the war was going on, so he had to join the service. There wasn't any decent job, so he joined the Air Force. And he was a smart man, and so he took the test, and he passed the test in the Air Force for the officer's training school. And he went down there to Miami, and then they sent him to Tuskegee, the segregated air base. And I was going to tell you, too, like years ago, graduate schools, universities in Texas didn't accept blacks. They would actually pay blacks. Did you know that, to go to schools out of the state? My aunt... My mother's baby sister, she was a social worker, and so she couldn't go to any school in Texas. So actually, Texas paid her to go to AU School of Social Work. 
she went over there with my mother when when he was still in the Air Force. But they paid him. I mean, you just some of the things. That's <laughs> what I told the study group I went to. I said, you know what? I guess I have scars. They will always be there. I will be buried with my scars. Okay. What I try to do is um, do what I can to make this community a better place to live in. And I do it through the paper. Uh, I try to educate to make people aware of issues. It really bothers me that students don't read as much as they need to. We're going to start a program in August with the students at Lincoln where uh, we take, I think they said, three or five would come down here and they would spend like a class period. And basically what we would do is produce a page that they have where other students are electronically writing, you know, to them and edited and all. We feel like maybe if you have something that they have generated, they've written, that they will read it more and then maybe they'll move on over and read other parts of the paper. That sounds awesome. Well, I am a professional government service employee. I graduated from school, didn't want to go get my master's, and I took the uh, state exam. That was a whole fiasco in itself. I'm just going to tell you what happened. My father had a friend who was the first black to work for the Texas Employment Commission. That's what they called it then here in Dallas, downtown. And he asked her, said, Mom, I didn't want to go to grad school. You know anything about any openings? Well, I had been out there to apply for a social work, casework out there on Harry Hines because I majored in sociology, minored in psychology. And so her name was Miss Jeffries. <laughs> she actually slipped an application out to give my father for me to apply for this program that they had started. It was during the war on poverty. And um, he brought it home, and I filled it out, and I was accepted. It was called a cause, and I can't remember, C-A-U-S-E, I can't remember what all it stood for. But it was part of the Comprehensive uh, em Employment Act, you know, that they created as a part of the war on poverty to get more people employed. And, under and so the government paid for me to go to uh, Tulane in New Orleans to train for that, and then I finished that. I checked a little block on the state exam that said I would work anywhere in Texas, and so they sent me to Harlingen, Texas. So I worked for nine and a half years as an employment counselor in Harlingen. That was another segregated experience down there because they were not accustomed to blacks being in professional positions. Things were not, they were not segregated, but they just weren't, you know. I mean, when I walked in the office, they had no blacks working in the office, and the first thing the manager said was, well, this ain't gonna work out. So th this is the kind of thing that I'm against all the time. And then uh, I married a man from down there. He's deceased now. He died two years ago. He had pancreatic cancer. He was a lawyer, too. And then uh, I moved to Houston. I was assistant manpower director of the manpower program for Harris County for three years. And then I came to Dallas, and I worked for the city of Dallas. I managed the Title VI program for about six months. And then I saw they had postings, federal employment, you know, jobs. Open. My father did not want me working for the federal government because, he, you know, he had worked for him at the VA hospital, and he said federal employees were lazy. <laughs> He said they'd go to break in the morning, lunch, break in the afternoon, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I um, I applied and I got on and I moved on up. I was branch chief over the Office for Civil Rights for a little over 20 years. And I supervised people who were doing uh, uh, compliance, discrimination complaints. And I love my work. And so... Um, and that was in the city of Dallas. Oh, yeah. It was Dallas region, what was it, five or six? It was for... Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, um, 
New Mexico and um, Louisiana. Five states, and that's, so we that's a did. Big group of states. <laughs> yeah, and we tried. We had some experiences with that stuff. I mean, like certain places that we went to investigate, we didn't drive government cars, you know, because people, some of the places were not, and and a lot of the hospitals we used to go in. Some of the hospitals in New Orleans, they were still segregating patients in the in the wards. I mean, you know, and they'd know we were coming. They would put people in. They had pulled the sheet back and they had on the clothes. You know, it was that was experience. But anyway, I went there, and then. My father always believed that a newspaper was important to the African-American community and to the whole community. And a lot of lawyers had newspapers, and he owned a third of the Dallas Post-Tribune, but he had two other partners. So the things that he wanted to do to move the paper forward, they didn't want to do. And he was tired of looking at the front page saying who killed who and all this kind of stuff. So he started the Dallas Examiner from scratch. And... um, he and my mother were murdered in 1986, about two months after he started printing the paper. And so uh, I tried to manage the paper from my government office. It did not work. So by that time, my kids were away from home. They were in college. And I just uh, I took a leave of absence first, and I just couldn't go back. So I didn't go back. I started working here at the paper. Now, the paper, uh, you know, I used to tell people when they come in here, and I was trying to make sales pitches and things. And I talked to them, and they said, you know, they said, don't say your father's vision, because it's become your vision. So that's what happened in a period of time. It just kind of became my vision. And I have special interest in education and in health issues. And so you see that in the paper and what I do. I don't make a salary here. I live off my retirement. And... um because the paper doesn't really make that much money. Uh, we have a very difficult time getting advertising. I call it institutional racism. I mean, I have to fight the city for advertising. I get nothing from the county. And then private industries, they feel like, well, black people, even though we spend a lot of money buying groceries, we don't get not one grocery yet every week. So it's very difficult. And it's like I was telling Rob, when they were here, I said, you know, if I had just a basic advertising, I wouldn't need sponsorships for education page and all this. I would have all that in the paper and I would cover it because I know that it's a void and it's something community needs. And, you know, when we have healthy people, Dallas is healthy. When we have educated people, Dallas is an educated city. And then it's a better place, you know, for us. And that's one thing that the fathers that be, I think they thought about when they brought Bishop here, they felt like they wanted Dallas to kind of be like Atlanta. Because Atlanta, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's like a mega for black people because of all the colleges. At one time, they had five, and they have the graduate school, AU. And so in Atlanta, oh, my goodness, a high percentage of blacks are college educated. And they kind of wanted, they said, why can't we be like Atlanta? So, you know, having come when you're a little girl and then go away for college and come back and then leave again and then come back and you're sort of in each of these different capacities each time, you know, you've really had to have seen the city change in in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. How, how would you kind of define the, the changes? You know, the some of the changes, um, I always tell people years ago, we didn't have, we being black people, we did not have a seat, I say, at the table. I mean, like boards, councils, and things like that. Our voice was not heard. And um, today we do have an opportunity to have a seat at the table and for our voices to be heard. 
However, it's very, very disappointing because um, so many times when uh, blacks are appointed to boards and commissions, when they're elected to um, city council, commissioners, they represent themselves and they forget about the constituents. You know, I remember the first school board trustee was uh, uh, Emmett Conrad. Dr. Conrad, he's lived across the street from me when I was growing up. But it, the thing is that um, today so many blacks forget who they are representing. And then a lot of them don't know their history. I can't call off for you right now the percentage of blacks who vote, but it's very, very low. The whole percentage in Dallas of voters is very low, of eligible voters. And I always tell people, it doesn't matter. You know, you're white. You don't have to vote. I mean, you do have to vote, but you don't need to vote like I do because people died so I could vote. You know, and I know my history. And so I know the sacrifices that were made so that I could vote. So every time the polls open, I go and I just feel like every black ought to get up and go vote. So that's that's disheartening. But we we could do a lot that we're not doing, you know, and in education, that is very, very discouraged. Oh, that is when I look at the public school system, you know, I was going to do a supplement on public schools once I half of it and the charter schools the other half I realized that some charter schools are very good and some are bad just like you know public schools but in terms of the city I see people I see the representation but they're not representing the constituents for the most part some of them are but for the most part they're not they're really not and um you see people, you know, come in who legitimately have interest in education. And I don't know what we're going to do about the education system. I really don't. I don't have a solution for it. But the only thing that I can do as an individual is say, okay, what do I have control over? One thing is this newspaper. How can I use this newspaper to educate the community, to make them aware of various health issues, education issues? How can I do that, you know? And that's all I can do. But, I, yeah, I've seen the city change. I've seen it change because we do have diversity. Got diversity at city council, but you still have a lot of things that could be done with the city that aren't being done. We have three blacks on the school board of trustees. We have uh, black on the commissioner's court. We have blacks on the Parkland Hospital board, on bailable. I mean, you know, we 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 have a seat at the table, but how do we use that seat? You know, and I know one time I, I used to write house editorials and I stopped. But one, one time I wrote one, I said, you know, black people, we tend to tell people what they want to hear. Not the truth, the facts, you know. Oh, oh, you want to hear so-and-so. OK, oh, you want to hear this. So this is what I'm going to tell you. But then when I leave and I'm with other blacks, I say something different. So a lot of times I blame black people for not just being honest because, you know, it's a nice way to say some things. You don't have to be argumentative. If somebody hurts your feelings or, or something is unfair, you can say, well, you know what, this really isn't fair because so-and-so and so-and-so. You can say it in a way that is not, you know, because sometimes people may not have thought about it, you know. What are some of the other ways that you're, you're trying to use this newspaper to do these things you're talking in about? In terms of health, we publish like, uh, I, and I don't know if you know, but the highest rate of new rates of HIV infection are African-American women. Mm. You don't hear anybody talking about it. So we do a special on HIV. I had the hardest time getting that thing punted. I didn't get any money from 
Well, I did. I got one ad from Methodist and one ad from Prism Health. But basically, it was funded by Gilead Sciences. Uh, and oh God, going online and getting that grant. Uh, and, and actually, the way I did it, I lost money. I didn't make money. But anyway, I try things like that to educate. We're going to put out a supplement in August on your legal rights and uh, the legal community in Dallas. And so the way we're going to fund it is ads from attorneys, but it's going to have some basic information in there about just legal rights, and I can get that from the bar and places. We're trying to have an education supplement uh, in July, but so far nobody wants to buy any ads. I think it's a bad wrong time of year. Budgets are gone, and but we were going to have it with... Uh, the public schools have all these schools of choice that they would basically, you know, let have something in there about, you know, the different schools of choice. And then the charter schools, the ones that are, you know, that would advertise. I have a problem in my mind, though, about the charter schools, because when you ask people to advertise like that, they say what they want to say. And you don't know that they're really good or not. Do you know what I mean? Actually, in terms of informing the community, I would rather have money where I could just do a news article on the chart. Like, we have one charter school, Faith Community, and they say it's an alternative school, but alternative is not in the name of the school. So the parents, they said they have something like 2,200 students over there. So they don't, the parents don't know they can send their kids to an alternative school. So when they get ready to go to college, they don't have the necessary requirements to go to college. But I can do just so much because I have limited advertising. But, but I'd rather do it, you know, and I probably will do it that way because the more I think about those schools, I'm like, uh-uh. I mean, if I let them do it, they'd be writing all kind of propaganda. You know what I mean? I mean, I really would like to talk about some of the good ones in terms of their ratings with the state, in terms of the students. But, you know, Johnson takes money. That mm-hmm. takes money. And, you know, the newsprint's going up with these tariffs. I mean, every month my, my print bill goes up. So, I mean, it's, I'm limited. But that's how I use the format. Like, I don't make a dime off Monday Night Politics. Not one dime. The sponsors that we have, they don't pay us. We just ask them to be sponsors because they help us get people out. They put it on their websites and in their newsletters and, you know, help people to come. And they're all nonprofit organizations. We have all the black sororities, the fraternities, and organizations like we have the links in NAACP. Had the Urban League when they existed here, but you know what happened, they're gone. Uh, actually, the Dallas Examiner ends up spending money because we had one forum with one of the judges, and that judge, they acted up. I had to hire constables. I hired two constables because if they see somebody in a uniform, you know. Uh, but we do that because we feel that it's very important for people to, to try to be educated and, you know, know about the candidates. They're not going to find out everything in Monday Night Politics, but hopefully it will, you know, they'll, they'll have an incentive. Let me look a little further. Let me read. Let me do this. You know, let me get involved. Because that was a good forum, that District 9 forum. It was great. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. We've been doing that for about nine years. We don't endorse either. The Dallas Examiner has never endorsed uh, a candidate. Because, you know, some people ask me, well, why don't you endorse? We don't endorse because we do not have the resources to uh, have editorial staff because I'm not going to have somebody just walk in here and tell me what they want me to know about themselves and then I write it. 
which is why I like Monday Party, because the people get to call them out and ask them questions, you know. But in terms of, you know, somebody that really has the time, you're following education, you know what they voted for, what they have and what they're doing, you hold them accountable, you know. And I couldn't make a whole lot of money if I endorsed, because, you know, how people give you some money if you endorse people, but we have never endorsed. But we, we, we don't have the resources to endorse. And I have a nonprofit vision team, this 501c3. And I use it with things like grants and stuff. It goes to that. That's what I did with the aid supplement. Gilead gave the grant to Vision Team, and then Vision Team purchased the supplement from the Dallas Examiner. They nice. do it like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm really worried now. In fact, I talked to somebody before I came in here this morning, and they called me about something. I said, I'm worried because half people don't even know we have a runoff May the 22nd. And a lot of people don't know that the school board election is May 5th. Um. Do you have more success with the digital version? I know you mentioned like the cost of print and getting no, advertisers. But we got to move that way. In fact, I just emailed somebody about uh, getting me an app for the paper. Somebody said if I have an app, that may be good, you know. Um, oh, he said he would love to do that. Well, that's yeah, great. It would be too much for me to afford. But I'm very involved with our National Association of Newspapers. So we have 200 black papers in the United States. I served on the executive committee for about six years, and I serve on the board now, but I'm getting ready to go off. So I'm one of our national reps. He called me this morning. and So he was thinking out of the box, and he said, you know what? He said, what do you think if, if the papers had apps? And they put it on the phone so that people just click the app like Dallas Examiner and the whole paper would come up. I said, well, that's brilliant. He said, and what you do is he charged the advertiser like $3 a month. You have to think. You have to do something to build that digital presence because that's what it's going to. People, they're not realizing it now, but my rep for my print company, they sent me an article the other day with a Longview Daily Paper, how they had cut out all these pages. And they actually put an article in the paper and told the readers that they would not have these pages because of uh, the tariffs and because of the cost of newsprint. And I was in Austin last week, and you know the Austin statement is about like that. But see, to make money off digital, you have to have millions of views. I was in uh, D.C. in March for Black Press Week, and we had a reception for Camilla Harris, the state senator from, from California, she spoke. And there was three men there from the uh, Chicago Press Association, and they were there lobbying the legislature about this stuff. I mean, it could put newspapers out of business. We're already in trouble. Print is permanent. Oh, and UNT, they, uh, they're going to archive our paper. We joined Texas Press Association, so uh, what I have to do now when we have time, we have to send all of our back issues, 32 years, to UNT, and, and they're going to archive them. That's awesome. Yeah, I talked with the lady up there. They have a grant. I was accepted for membership for Texas Press Association, so we sent a PDF every week to them, and they send it to her of the current issues, but I got to do all those back issues. And she says she's going to send some kind of drive or something for my production person to download the papers on it. So that's, I feel good about that. When my husband, the reason we left Harlington, my husband's from Harlington. And my husband was a, an athlete. Uh, he went to school on a, a track scholarship and then a basketball scholarship. And he has some horrible stories within him, so we just really got along great together. I'm going to tell you, he was a star basketball player in high school. And when they had the athletic banquet, they had it at the 
Harlingen Country Club and blacks couldn't go. So he didn't get to go to his African. I mean, what kind of scum? I mean, you know what I mean? Uh, and he was very bitter. I mean, you know. So he went to uh, CUNY College first. He went to Texas Southmost. And when they went, they went to play some school up here, basketball. They actually called them niggas, threw stuff at them on the floors and everything. And, oh, I got to find that letter. The president of the school apologized to him for what happened. But, I mean, here he was a man, 60-something years old, you know. But, I mean, the things that, that we went through. So, anyway, he was there. He That's what he was. And then we went to Houston. He went to law school while we were married. He went to Houston. And um, when we moved to Dallas, we stayed with my parents. And we every Sunday we'd go looking for a house. And so, of course, then the, the, the nice part of town where a lot of people, blacks were moving to was Oak Cliff. It was like white flight. I wish I had taken a picture. You drive down those streets and it was a for sale sign in every yard. And people were just almost giving houses away. I mean, they were not making a lot off them, just like, we, you know, take this up, pay my more. I mean, it was just so it was truly a picture of white flight. We purchased a house in Oak Cliff. I still live in it now. And it was predominantly whites around us at the time. Of course, they had their little yard signs up. They sent their kids to St. Elizabeth School and to Bishop Dunn. They did not send them to Kimball to the public schools, to Carpenter. As soon as they sold their homes, they moved north. And I was telling them, I said, you know, uh, we could have had a very nice integrated neighborhood because the people... Black people who were moving in Oak Cliff at the time were professionals, you know, educated, had disposable income. It wasn't any riffraff, but people just moved. And Camp Wisdom, I don't know if you're familiar with Camp Wisdom, but Camp Wisdom had all kinds of nice restaurants on it. We had Chili's, we had Black Eyed Pea, we had Steak and Ale, you know, we had all these restaurants. And as soon as their leases were up, they moved. They closed them. And so if that had not happened, even the school, like Kimball High School, my kids went to Kimball. And my husband and I could afford to send them to private school, but we didn't. Because we felt it was very important to be involved in the public school system that we could make it better. I really failed. We, we were unable to do it. And at that time, we had a black superintendent, Edwards. I remember going to meetings up there at the school, like I said, telling them, look, kids have to have an opportunity to write. Communication skills are very important. You have to be able to write, speak, you know. And they didn't have any opportunity to write. So, you know, we struggled it out. I mean, the last year that my daughter was at Kimball, she was the youngest. Oh, I was scared every day she went to school. I wanted them to put some bell detectors up there because they were finding guns and lockers. It just was not safe. And my daughter wanted to be a doctor. She was the salutatorian of the class. And she would never go to UT for an interview because her father turned her against it, you know, by what happened to him when he went up there. He went, well, I didn't tell you, he went up there for a track meet once he took his high school for a track meet. And he could not stay with the team. And his coach stayed with him on the east side of the hotel. He will never forget that. So he talked about UT so bad to her. She had a full scholarship to go to UT. She would not even go down there for the interview. So she went to Xavier in New Orleans and got a very good education, but she had to work extra hard. We had to pay tutors because she 
she said things that she just had not had not had an opportunity to learn. She graduated from Xavier. She's a doctor now. She's OBGYN in Austin. Very good one. She specialized in a Da Vinci robotic surgery, GYN surgery, and she has doctors send patients to her to operate on their patients to do the robotic. I mean, she's good. That would have been just a wasted mind, you know. But she finished Kimball, and she said she would never send her children to public school. And I just feel like, you know, I failed. She said, Mama, but, you know, I had a good education, but I had, you just don't know how hard I had to work in college because those students had been exposed to so much more than I had been. I, I feel like if we had not had the white flight in Oak Cliff and we had had a more integrated, you know, kids all there together and working, and parents too, because like the guy across the street from us, he was a veterinarian. I mean, we had, you know, people just got up move. And they didn't really know us, you know, but... It, uh, they moved, and the business is closed. Like I told Mayor Rollins one time, I said, you know, I know you have tried real hard. I know you have, because when you ran for mayor, your whole thing was there's plenty of money in North Dallas, and I'm going to bring some of that money south. I said, but you haven't been able to do it because it's institutional racism. And, you know, we have to have our schools integrated. You can't have just a school with the same socioeconomic base and all that. You just, you know, you can't. Because I worked very hard when my kids were at Kimball. I was president of the PTA forever. Because when kids get to high school, their parents don't want to work in the PTA. I mean, I was the chaperone going on the Spanish trips and everything, you know, just really trying to, to make it. And we had a good principal one time. I think he's deceased now, Robert Payton. He was good, a good principal. And so the whole time uh, my kids were there, I wouldn't let him leave. Every time I'd hear that he was going to get promoted to the board downtown, I'd go down there and, you know, <laughs> I mean, it was so bad that he called me in his office and he said, Miss Bell, he said, I'm going to move up. I'm going to make more money. I said, but you are such a good principal. So you don't need to go down, you know. Finally, as soon as my daughter graduated, he got a job, you know. Then you gave him permission. To, to I didn't care anymore. That. I had given up, you know. He was, he was a good principal. You know, he was a disciplinarian. You know, he set the tone for the school. But even though he did that, there were just so many things in terms of educational opportunities. So how many kids do you have? I have a boy and a girl. Okay. And so they both went to Kimball. Mm-hmm. And where did they go before Kimball? Carpenter. Okay. Yeah, Carpenter's just right up the street from my house. Mm. But, you know, it's just sad, Josh, how today. Now, all through my kids, when they went to school, my husband had always paid uh, tutors for them. The tutors were probably primarily for my son because he didn't like to study. He didn't, he wasn't interested. He wanted to ride that Papa would leave bicycle all outside and stuff. And my daughter would say, well, if he has somebody to come help him, I want somebody to help me. So I always ended up having tutors. And today, even though my daughter like sends her child to that Episcopal school, and it's a very good school, but you know, she has to pay. She goes to math tutoring on Saturdays. She goes to reading camp in the summer. You know, it's something wrong. When I was growing up, we didn't have tutors. I remember my mother tutoring this one little boy. 
it was a friend's son, and he wasn't doing well in school. And my mother told her friend, Marilyn, just let him come over here, and I'll work with him on Saturdays, and she did. So that was tutoring, and he went on to become a veterinarian. But I never had a tutor. It was, nobody else that I knew did. We didn't have all that tutoring. My girlfriend and I talk about it all the time, how much money our kids spend on tutoring, and then they're paying private school tuition. It doesn't make sense. If you're going to a school, you don't have to have, to have tutors, you know. So, I don't know. But, yeah, we had the, I did tell Rob about the white flight. Oh, God, I wish I'd taken a picture of that. My, my husband's like, this is what they call it, white flight. They were running. They didn't know us. What year did you graduate? 61. Okay. Mm -hmm. I I graduated in 61, and my mother went out to Pinkston that next year with Thomas Talbot. He was transferred to Pinkston when they built Pinkston High School. And then she, I think she was out there maybe one year, and then she she went to El Centro. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear, you know, you graduated in 61, uh, you know, eight years after uh, Brown v. Board, still, still segregated, still never go to school with the white person. Uh uh-uh. uh, except in Cambridge. Hmm. Except in Cambridge, but my husband went to integrated school. They closed his segregated school as soon as Brown versus Pat. You know, Harley. down in the valley, Rio Grande Valley near Mexico. Gotcha. But see, they had very few blacks living down there. And they had Mexicans, but then what happened was there were a lot of communities like that. Most of them were smaller where you had choice. No, you didn't have choice. They closed the school, and it was, it was better for the few black kids to go to the main school. So that's why he didn't have a you know, athletic banquet and stuff like that. You know, he, so he had more scars than I did you know, when he said, I don't think about it. But... Um, they just immediately integrated, but not Dallas. Mm. Dallas fought it, fought it, fought it. It was just, I was in college, I see, 61. Dallas integrated while I was in college. And I have asked, like, some of the teachers who maybe were younger than my parents, you know, to do stories. Do you, do you remember what was it like after the schools were integrated and you worked at another school? And the one lady I asked, her name was Miss Burke. She taught biology. She says she went to work out at Bishop. She didn't, you know, do the integration thing. And she told me she, she may have done the integration thing for one year, but she said it was so unpleasant she didn't want to talk about it. And you find a lot of blacks who feel that way. They don't want to talk about certain things, you know. I work, When I was working for the federal government, I worked with George Allen, you know, that boardhouse downtown named after his father. And he finished Lincoln before I did. And I would say, oh, yeah, and you remember. He said, Molly, why do you keep talking about all that old stuff? You know, he didn't, he want, a lot of people just want to put it behind them, you know. And he was like, why are you always bringing that up? And I said, that's history. That's history. You're supposed to know it, you know. Well, and I think especially for somebody like me you've you've mentioned a couple times like these these scars that that somebody like me I would not I would not be able to see necessarily I would not know unless I had the opportunity and a lot of people won't tell you about them and so people won't talk about them for very good reasons because those are very deep hurtful things but at the same time in order for 
for my generation to really have the respect for for that experience that we need to. You need to, to know about There's it. There's such a, yeah, it's such a delicate mm-hmm. balance. I just wonder if you could kind of address going and even about if that. You, even if you know, well, I'm thinking back when I went to DU, because that was really the first time that I was really around a lot of white kids. I lived in a Aspen home, and uh, our dormitory was a, a, a lot of suites. And so I lived in a suite with um, three other girls. Connie was from uh, New York, and um, Bonnie was from Michigan. They stayed one room together. And then the other room, my roommate, uh, Carolyn, was from uh, one of those Midwestern times. She was cuckoo. (laughs) But anyway, um, it was an educational experience. For them because they hadn't been around anybody black. And so um, I never will forget, Connie had the cutest little Thunderbird convertible. Her parents were real rich. She, her father was like in finance in New York and she was an avid skier and very mature, you know, I mean, like she would drive that car from New York and they had a summer home in Arizona. And so she would take me to the beauty shop in, in, the, in the city. I went to a black beauty shop. So she knew nothing about black people's hair. And she was curious, you know. And in living together, you learn things about people, you know. You get to know, golly, they're like this, but this is why they do this. Like, she had to get up every morning, take a shower, and wash her hair. Because, you know, white people, you get oil in your hair. We don't get oil. We have to put oil in our hair. Just like we don't get lice, you know. My daughter, she tickled me. She... She, the, the practice that she's a partner in, it's uh, all white. And so she, she said, it was in during memo around talking about, you know, if somebody had lice or something, be careful. And she's like, don't send that to me. I don't get that. <laughs> you know, I don't get that. And um, she has worked real hard because her, her husband is very dark complected and her oldest daughter is dark complected. And she has worked real hard to, to uh, build up the self-esteem of her daughter because She's so different from the other kids, even the other black kids, you know. And, uh, like, you know, she'd tell her things like, your skin is beautiful, don't you know that? You know, white people go to the tanning booth to get get darker. You can wear these colors all year, you know. You don't get lice in your hair, so she's just real proud, you know. (laughs) But if you're around people, you learn about them. We really, and, you know, that's the first time that I really, um, was aware of different religions. Because, see, Connie was um, Catholic. And her boyfriend, who was also from New York, he was Jewish. And those families did not want them together. And that's when I really realized, you know, the difference. Because I'd never been around anything. Everybody I've been around all Christians, you know, Baptists or Methodists or Catholic. Very few Episcopals. And, and so a lot of it is learning people. Like, you probably learned a lot about black people today. You know, it's just some things that you just have to, you know, share experience. I just think it's very important to share experiences. But a lot of people don't know, and, and uh, you know, to be educated, you do need to know. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds great. May 12th? Yeah. Our, our if you give me your card. The Oral 
History of Molly Belt is powered by the Commit Partnership and produced by me, Joshua Kumler. It is executive produced by me, along with John Hill, Catherine McKeska, and Rob Shearer. Mixed and mastered by Will Short. Music by Trevor Yakochi. Special thanks to Molly Belt and everyone at the Dallas Examiner. If you'd like to subscribe or support the paper, please visit dallasexaminer.com or email mbelt at dallasexaminer.com. You can read a full transcript of our conversation at our website, commitpartnership.com. This oral history is dedicated to the entire Belt and Finch family. Thank you for making Dallas a better place by your presence. We'll be back soon with more Miseducation. Thank you.